0: Peter Schiff show Well, another week, another record high in the Dow Jones Industrial Average and in case you missed the news, don't worry, President Trump will make sure and point that out. In fact, I saw an interview with Donald Trump yesterday with Sean Hannity and the president uh, couldn't help but boast about the record high on the Dow Jones and to take credit for the gain and in fact he said that if the democrats get voted in the market's going to get cut in half so that is a pretty bold statement to say that the stock market is worth twice as much with me as president as it would be worth if the democrats got in power now i don't know if he was referring to the democrats taking control of the white house in 2020 or taking control of the congress Later this year, I mean, maybe the president is pre blaming a future sell off in the stock market on the Democrats taking control of Congress. I mean, I wouldn't put it past him if we start to see the market selling off later in the year and the Democrats do take control, even if it's only the House and the market tanks. I bet the president will say, you see, if the Republicans had retained control of Congress, then the market would still be going up. But because the Democrats have wrestled away control of either the entire Congress or maybe just the House, this is a roadblock in my agenda. And this is making people nervous. And this is the reason that the stock market is falling. And in fact, it may continue to fall into the 2020 presidential elections. The question is, will the voters buy Trump's explanation that Everything was great until uh, the Congress changed hands and, hey, now it's not my fault. I think that's going to be a hard sell if the president is claiming so much responsibility for the improvements in the market. I don't see how he could blame the turn on Congress changing when most likely no significant legislative changes will take place. If the Democrats take control of Congress, it'll simply leave everything as a status quo, meaning everything that the president did when Republicans had control of Congress will stand and they just won't be able to make any additional quote unquote progress. But to me, Donald Trump is going to own whatever happens to the stock market while he is president, regardless of what happens Uh, with the congressional elections. And that is because the president has gone out of his way to point out the record run on Wall Street and to claim responsibility for this bull market. And in fact, when you look at the coverage in the media, particularly on Fox News. I mean, every single uh, person who works at Fox News, they constantly talk about how great this economy is, how incredible the economy is, how unprecedented the prosperity is. And basically it's all because of Donald Trump and all of the great things that he has accomplished as president. And, you know, this is dangerous stuff. This is the same thing that, was being said when George Bush was president. And look, just because you're a Republican, you don't have to try to claim that anything that's done by another Republican is great, right, in order to make the Democrats look bad because ultimately that comes back and bite you because you lose all credibility when the economy turns down and you've been gushing over how great it is and how successful uh, the Republican president is. And when it turns out that it was just a bubble, it was just an illusion. And when that bubble bursts and the illusion is replaced with harsh reality, well, I mean, you've got nothing. And then it makes it easier for the other side uh, to scapegoat uh, the capitalism for the problems and to hold out more government as this solution but you know the markets are continuing to move up and one of the more ridiculous um, ideas that I think is floating around now is the existence of the so-called Trump tariff put and I've heard a lot of talk about that and basically it goes like this hey Trump is very concerned about the stock market, the level of the stock market. Yes, he's threatening these tariffs and we have additional tariffs. If the tariffs actually prove to be harmful to the economy or to the stock market or to both, well, Trump can simply soften his stance or maybe just surrender in the trade war right just give up on the tariffs and therefore the stock market will come roaring back because if the stock market is falling because of the tariffs and then we take the tariffs away well then there's no reason that the stock market won't just rally right back up so in other words there's this put so it's heads the market wins uh, tails nobody loses right because as long as the tariffs aren't doing any damage the markets keep going up But if the tariffs turn out that they do damage, well, then they get rid of them. And the market resumes going up, even if it has temporarily gone down. So that is the Trump put, you know, just like uh, the Greenspan put that we had, which became the Bernanke put and the Yellen put, whether or not there's a Powell put beneath the market. The idea was, hey, if the market ever falls... The Federal Reserve is going to slash rates to make it go back up again. So you can't lose. Even if the market goes down, you're going to get bailed out, whether it's by the Federal Reserve or whether it's by Donald Trump. But again, I think this type of attitude is more just wishful thinking. It's a kind of attitude uh, that permeates a mania a bubble, Uh, it's the fearless, hey, you're looking to invent another reason to be bullish and not to be worried. If this stock market really starts to fall, it's not going to matter if we call off the tariffs because if the market is falling, chances are it's falling not simply because of the tariffs. I mean, the tariffs might be one element that is a problem for the markets, but it may simply be one of a number. And just getting rid of the tariffs is it going to be enough to turn around a bear market in stocks, which is long overdue. In fact, you can argue that if Trump were to give up on the trade war, surrender, right? Because the markets were going down. Because right now he's saying that we're winning the trade war because the Chinese stock market is going down. The U.S. stock market is going up. Therefore, we are winning and the Chinese are losing. Now, if the U.S. market starts to fall too... Well, then by Trump's own definition, we're not winning anymore either, right? Now, maybe we're, we're all losing. But if Trump then surrenders because it turns out that we can't win the war, I think that there are a lot of people now that have already priced in a victory. Because remember, the whole a promise of the trade war is these great deals that Trump is going to be able to leverage. The tariffs are the stick, that he's using to beat the Chinese over the head, but ultimately the payoff is going to be that they're going to agree to some great deal, some huge win uh, for the United States, and that ultimately this is going to pay dividends, that we're going to have... Bigger trade, uh, you know, more surpluses or more exports and companies are going to make more money. Uh, wages are going to be higher. I mean, everything is going to be great, right? It's all, again, sunshines and rainbows at the other end of this of this tariff, right? But if Trump has to take the tariffs away because he has to admit that we're losing because the market is going down, maybe the market is already pricing in all these promised benefits, that are waiting for us at the other side of this trade war. And if the trade war is over and we surrender, if those benefits have already been priced into the market, well, now we've got to price those benefits out, whatever they were. So it's even possible that if the market is falling and then Donald Trump's reaction to a falling market is to back away from the tariffs, the market could actually fall even more. It could accelerate the decline. It could look like... a desperation, it could look like an admission of failure, of loss. Uh, So I I think this put doesn't exist. I mean, it's it's already expired, or people are going to find it's expired if they go to exercise it. So uh, this is, again, uh, what you would expect in manias and bull markets. In fact, another thing that you would expect is playing out with the cannabis stocks. One company in particular, this one called Tilray, was up at three hundred dollars a share yesterday. Now I think the fifty-two week low in the stock is around twenty bucks. So twenty to three hundred. I mean, it's a huge move. Investors who got in on this stock have already made a tremendous amount of money. But it traded as high as three hundred dollars yesterday morning. It closed today at one hundred and twenty-three dollars a share. So what? That's better than a sixty percent decline uh, since yesterday's open. Again, this is the type of manic activity that you see in the type of market that we are in, and you know you see this again in the in the cryptocurrencies. Uh, you're seeing it in the cannabis stocks, and I know a lot of the people in the crypto sphere like to compare what's happening in the cryptos to what happened in the dot coms in the 1990s. I don't think that's a fair comparison because I don't think any of the cryptos are going to ultimately survive. There were several dot-com stocks that ultimately survived. Even if they went down 90% first, there are several companies that survived. Of course, the vast majority went to zero. And some of the stocks that are at the top today, like Google, weren't even around. They weren't even part of the 1990s bubble. They were created after that bubble has already popped. So it's not the cryptos that remind me of the dot-coms. It's the cannabis stocks. That's a much clearer Example of what happened back then because cannabis is a real business, just like all these coms. you know, there was real business models in mind. I mean, most of them didn't work. Most of these companies went bankrupt. Probably most of the cannabis companies that are out there are going to go bankrupt, but they're probably not all going to go bankrupt. Some of them are going to survive and maybe some of them will dominate the future cannabis industry. That doesn't mean that their share prices can't drop by 90% first. And then ultimately some of them might recover, but it is a mania now. I mean, A lot of money is going to be lost by speculative investors who are jumping on uh, this bandwagon now, being lured by the profits that have already been made by people who invested years ago, and now all of a sudden the stocks are way up, and now people want to bet that trees are going to grow to the sky. Well, they're not, and the smarter money is selling into this, and obviously there's also a short squeeze, because whenever you have bubbles, you have short sellers coming in, and they usually come in too early, right? They You, you never can tell how big a bubble is going to get. And when people are shorting against it, they end up getting squeezed, meaning that they get margin calls. Uh, the positions are really moving against them. And then the shorts have to come in and also buy back the stocks at even higher prices to cut their losses or to minimize uh, future risks. But ultimately, you know, cannabis could be a huge industry. More and more players are going to enter the market. You know, the people don't have Uh, Patents on this stuff or even, uh, you know, branding, uh, you know, there's lots of competition in this space. There's going to be more and more competition to the extent that the profits are there. uh, They'll be competed away. People forget you have major tobacco companies that aren't even in on the action yet that ultimately will get in on the action that bring incredible economies of scale and distribution. And so this is going to be a wide open market. Who knows how it's all going to shake out. But the one thing that. that I know for sure is there is a bubble in these type of stocks. There is a speculative frenzy, a speculative mania going on. And again, this is the type of action that happens during overall bull markets, manias, stuff that you see happening at the top of of major trends. If we were deep in bear market territory, if stocks in general were in a bear market, then, you know, you probably wouldn't see this going on. But with all this cheap money floating around, with all these profits, all this pie in the sky, people are piling into this stuff. They're piling into these cannabis stocks. Uh, they're piling into social media companies. There are all sorts of companies that are going up. But that causes people to overlook all of the companies in all the sectors that are going down. Like I've mentioned, the automobile sector, major bear markets, these stocks going down the home builders going down. You know, we got more bad news uh, out of the real estate sector that came out this week. I mean, we had a huge drop in, in building permits. And also, we had the existing home sales came out for the month of August. And we did finally break the four consecutive months of declining existing home sales. So they didn't decline for a fifth straight month, but they didn't advance either. They were unchanged uh, for the fifth month. Now, of course, they might end up revising these numbers, so it's possible that we were down for a fifth month. We just don't know that yet, but we weren't up. So you can say we had five months where home sales either went down or did not go up. But I think the more ominous number there was the increase in the inventory. The supply of unsold homes that are on the market increase significantly. And, you know, most of the reporting that I was listening to or reading about, they saw this as as a positive, right? This was a, a good thing because they've been saying that part of the problem in the housing market was a lack of supply, a lack of homes to choose from. And so one of the reasons that there's so few sales is because buyers don't have enough houses to choose from. And I've never really bought into that argument. I always thought it was more a problem of affordability not a lack of supply, but just not really even enough demand for the supply that was there. But now that supply is growing, this is going to put even more downward pressure on prices as the sellers compete with one another to unload their homes. The problem, though, is even though the price of homes is probably going to be coming down due to the increasing supply and i believe we've just seen the tip of the iceberg the supply iceberg that's coming i think there's been a lot of shadow inventory too that's going to come out of the shadows and we're going to start to see a lot more homes for sale the problem is even though home prices are coming down or will be coming down the cost of buying them is going to be going up right because the most important part of the price is the cost of the mortgage. And now we've got mortgages now topping 5%. You know, the yield on the 30-year bond uh, was up again on the week, and we hit the highest in four years on the 30-year Treasury. We're still low. We're at 3.24, I think, was the high that we hit, something like that. That's still a ridiculously low level for a 30-year government bond. So we're still going much, much higher. But given the, the backup and rates that have already taken place, it's going to cost people a lot more money to buy homes. But it's not just the mortgage; insurance is more expensive to insure your home uh, against loss, you know, from you know hurricanes or fires or whatever. Uh, those rates have gone up. Your maintenance costs are going up. Your local uh, property taxes have been going up. So it's more expensive to buy a house. So the only thing that can give is the price. And as the price goes down, what does that mean? That means Americans' net worth go down to the extent that you still own a house. If your home equity is the biggest part of your net worth and the home equity goes away, well, you've wiped out most of your net worth. And of course, as real estate prices go down, what happens? defaults go up, right? People have less incentive to make their mortgage payment if they have no equity left. So they're more incentivized to stop making their mortgage payments and dare the bank to evict them. Because after all, why would the bank want to take over a house that's already underwater? Meaning if they sold it, they wouldn't even be able to recover the money that they loaned out. But this is what happened uh, 10 years ago or earlier than 10 years ago as housing prices were falling. So falling home prices create a big problem for the banks, they create a reverse wealth effect. The writing is on the wall here, uh, literally when it comes to what's happening in the housing market. But again, people want to ignore what's going on over there. They want to focus on the narrow segment of the market that's still going up and they want to ignore the the other area of the market that is going down and the implications that that has for you know the remaining uh, segment of the market That is still going up. And I mentioned, you know, interest rates again up on the week. So stock prices were up, but uh, bond prices were down. Interest rates were up. Oil, crude oil was up about $2 on the week. That's a pretty strong gain for crude. Um, You know, we got up, I think today even higher. And then there were some rumors Uh, that additional supply was going to come on the market. We were over $71. And so I think we closed about a dollar off the high, but still above $70 a barrel, which was a strong move. Gold prices did inch up a little bit on the week, uh, still just below $1,200. They were above $1,200 early this morning. And then all of a sudden, well before the U.S. stock market opened up, somebody came out and sold a whole bunch of gold futures contracts all within a minute, and the market tanked like $15. I think it coincided with a drop in the pound sterling because there were some concerns regarding Brexit that sent the pound lower, which caused the dollar to rise. In fact, the dollar index, which was down quite a bit on the week, managed to recover the 94 handle, close about 94.20. It was trading below 94. In fact, the low, I think, on the week, or today was 93.80 or so, and Maybe that was about the same as a low for tomorrow. And it you know got started on a weak note, but then all of a sudden the pound fell and that caused the uh, the dollar to rise a little bit. But that provided the catalyst again for this big gold sell-off. Now, gold managed to recover about half of its losses. It made the lows uh, very soon after, I think, the U.S. stock market opened, maybe even before, and then recovered. But never was able to recover back into positive territory and stayed just below 20 uh, Twelve hundred, whether it's psychologically important or not. But again, it's always very suspicious when you see uh, this big selling coming into the gold market. I mean, it never makes sense to me. If I had a bunch of gold that I wanted to sell, why would I dump it all on the market? You know, in one minute, I would ask the trader to work the order slowly over the course of the day so that I would get a better price. To me, when you see these kind of sell orders, the goal is not to get a good price. The goal is to move the market down for whatever reason, whatever ulterior motive uh, the seller has to try to influence the price of gold. That is, in fact, what is going on. But ultimately, this is not going to work. I mean, at some point, there's going to be some huge sell order that's going to come into the gold market and someone is going to buy it. And then the price is just going to keep going higher. Not exactly sure when that day is going to arrive, but it's probably going to be a lot sooner than most people think. Now, I read an article today about Walmart and how Walmart is now admitting that the tariffs are going to cause Walmart to have to raise prices. Like, oh, my God, really? Like, duh. I mean, obviously, The tariffs are going to cause Walmart to raise prices. I mean, that is the nature of this type of tax. They are called excise taxes. They're indirect taxes because the consumer pays them indirectly as they are built into the cost of the products that they buy. I mean, there is no way that the uh, Walmart stockholders are simply going to eat Uh, these 10% tariffs, which in fact may become 25% tariffs in January. And why should they? If all of their competitors are facing the exact same increase to their cost curve, then the free market equilibrium price is going to shift higher. I mean, it's basic economics. There is no way the consumer is going to avoid paying this tax. And part of the proof is that Walmart stock – is not getting killed. Amazon stock is not getting killed. If Amazon or Walmart was going to have to absorb the the tariffs, the stocks would be plunging. I mean, the margins are not that high. I mean, certainly on Amazon, the margins are razor thin. Maybe they're a little better at Walmart, uh, but not good enough to absorb a, a 10% and certainly not a 25% tariff. You know, when you go and you shop on Amazon sometimes you're actually buying products directly from Chinese manufacturers right where I think Amazon has a warehouse there in China and so stuff goes right from the Chinese manufacturer to a Chinese warehouse right to your front door uh, and and you're buying stuff from China and obviously those tariffs are going to be there Amazon can't absorb a 10% uh, tariff I mean The stock would collapse. They would lose a fortune. So the fact that these stocks are not crashing is proof that the customers are going to pay the tariffs, not the companies. Now, one thing stockholders might not appreciate is if uh, Amazon or Walmart have to increase their prices, which they will, to cover the cost of the tariff, a lot of their customers may not be able to afford to buy the products at the higher prices. So they may buy fewer products. And so overall, there's still going to be a loss to profitability because of reduced sales. In fact, what's really going to ultimately kill uh, the consumer is going to be when the dollar finally tanks, when the Chinese Yuan goes way up instead of going down because people don't understand the US economy or what the tariffs mean. When we actually see the dollar tanking and the Chinese Yuan going up, then Chinese products are going to become that much more expensive for American consumers. And of course, those higher prices that are going to result from movements in exchange rates are also going to be passed on to customers. But if the customers don't have the income to afford the higher price, well, then they just don't buy the product, right? And then the government doesn't collect the tariff because no sale is being made, but now no sale is being made. So, you know, the the whole economy is being impacted by the fact that the cost of living is going up, because not just of the tariffs, but because of the depreciation of the dollar. Americans will be rendered poorer as the cost of living will be increasing, particularly for the products that need to be imported. I want to change gears and talk a little bit about this article that I read that was published a couple of days ago in GQ about Puerto Rico and about all the people who have moved here to Puerto Rico, myself included, in part because uh, Puerto Rico uh, reduced taxes significantly on anybody who came to Puerto Rico. Uh, The act was passed in 2012. There are two acts, Act 20 and Act 22. One applies to businesses and one applies to individuals. Uh, Act 20 applies to businesses, basically sets a 4% corporate tax rate on your business income and Act 22 for individuals basically says that if you get any Puerto Rican source dividends, they're tax-free, which would include dividends that you are paid on your Act 20 company that's only paying a 4% corporate tax and no capital gains taxes on your personal investments. It is an excellent deal. They're one-upping states like Florida or Nevada. You know, it's quite common for states to try to lure entrepreneurs, high high income individuals from states that have a state income tax. And they say, hey, come to our state. We don't have a state income tax. So Puerto Rico is doing the same thing, except they're one upping uh, states like Florida by saying, hey, come to us. You don't have to pay the federal income tax either. So it's certainly legitimate for Puerto Rico to try to take advantage of its lower tax uh, status, just like various states tried to uh, take advantage of the fact that they have lower taxes. Tax competition among states is good. Having some tax competition coming out of Puerto Rico should be even better. But anyway, this article that was written, I thought, had a very biased slant. Uh, and in fact, I talked to the reporter uh, himself. I didn't actually meet with him in person. Uh, I was not on the island when he was here. And he only quoted me once in the the story and the quote that he used was accurate and but he didn't basically use the entire context in which I gave the quote and basically I said why would anybody come to a bankrupt island to pay high income tax you know and the reason I I made this point is because when you come to Puerto Rico you are guaranteed through a contract, that your taxes will remain at this level until 2035. And the reason that I said that's so important is knowing the fiscal problems that Puerto Rico has. Nobody with any kind of wealth would come to Puerto Rico now and take a chance That some politician doesn't sell some kind of redistribution scheme to the local electorate and say, hey, let's have a windfalls profits tax. Let's tax the rich people. Let's really jack up their taxes, because obviously the Puerto Ricans are going to vote for that. And so if you've got wealth, why are you going to want to bring that wealth to Puerto Rico? And run the risk that you get sacrificed, that you get held accountable and scapegoated for all the debts that were run up in Puerto Rico long before you ever got there. And then the government just starts picking your pocket because it makes sense because, you know, you're outvoted. And so the only way that Puerto Rico is able to encourage people to bring wealth over here is to say, hey, we're not going to try to tax you and hold you accountable for the problems that existed before you got here. Meanwhile, if you come here, we will guarantee you this low rate of tax, but it's still a positive number, right? 4% of something is better than 40, 50, or 60% of nothing. But this article kind of tried to downplay the success that uh, you know. I think Puerto Rico has already achieved from this program and kind of made it like, it's just this wild, you know, partying? I mean, they, the article started with this photograph of this wild pool party with all these girls in bikinis. And I don't know, I, don't know, I haven't seen any parties like that uh, since, uh, since I've been here. And they focused on, you know, some of the people who are just kind of down here and not really starting businesses. And I think they overlooked a lot of the, the charity work that we do. In fact, if you read the article, one of the points that the writer made about how, you know, we're creating all these jobs is he wrote, well, they've only created 12,000 jobs, which, you know, there's 3 million people in the country. So what are 12,000 jobs? I mean, that's hardly anything. Well, first of all, those are 12,000 jobs that wouldn't have existed. And I'm not really sure how accurate that number is. I mean, maybe it's more, but this is, you know, what the government is claiming, 12,000 jobs created from Act 22 individuals. And surely the people that have those jobs value those jobs, but had the author wanted to put this in a better context, it would not have compared the number of jobs created to the population of Puerto Rico, where most people in Puerto Rico aren't even working anyway. They would have compared the number of jobs created to the number of people who have come here for the tax incentives, which is only about 1,500 people, according to the article. So 1,500 people have created 12,000 jobs. That's eight jobs per person. That's pretty good. Each person that has come here has created eight jobs. So not only is the government collecting taxes from the guy who came here, right? And that's a lot of money, even if it's a low percentage. It's a low percentage of a big number, and it's money that they never would have had. But now those people are employing eight other people and paying them salaries, which are also getting taxed. So it is a fantastic deal for Puerto Rico. And that really did not come across, I think, uh, in in the article, but then what really pissed me off is I read another article that somebody wrote based on this article, and this guy went even further and basically tried to create the the false impression that the reason Puerto Rico is broke is because they're not taxing the rich people. They basically said, "Aha, you want to know why Puerto Rico doesn't have any money uh, for?" Hurricane relief, you want to know why Puerto Rico is broke? Because you have all these rich people who aren't paying their taxes. And if they only taxed the rich, then Puerto Rico wouldn't have any problems, right? This is what they want you to believe. So the solution is, you see, we got to tax the rich. You see what happens when you don't make the rich pay their fair share? You have a disaster, you're bankrupt. And so this proves that we need higher taxes on the rich and this idea that low taxes on the rich trickles down is a bunch of nonsense because it's not trickling down in Puerto Rico. What's nonsense is that is that socialist spin on what's happening because you can't blame the problems on Puerto Rico on the wealthier entrepreneurs who have come here starting in 2013. Puerto Rico was already broke by the time those people arrived. In fact, the reason that Puerto Rico passed these tax acts was because the country was broke and they were desperate. and They were thinking, what can we do? You know, people are leaving the island. The tax base is shrinking. What can we do to try to revitalize the economy? And so they came up with these tax incentives. And so only because of these tax incentives, people came here. If it wasn't for those tax breaks, None of the rich people who are here would be here to tax. So you can't say they wouldn't have these problems if only these rich people paid their taxes. The only reason those rich people are here is because the government said, if you come here, we're not going to tax you because otherwise they wouldn't have come here. Why would they want to take that chance? They're not idiots. You're not going to come into a democracy where all the people can vote to take whatever you have because you know the government is broke. I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to leave Connecticut was because I knew how much debt Connecticut had. And so if you you live in a state that has a lot of debt, You know, they're going to raise your taxes to deal with that debt. Well, Puerto Rico has a lot more debt than Connecticut, and they have a lot more incentive to jack up taxes, especially on the gringos who are showing up from the mainland. Can you imagine how high they would jack the taxes up if there wasn't a law that prevented them from doing that? So none of these people that this author wants to blame all the problems on would be here. But for these low taxes and because they are here, they've created a bunch of jobs. They're creating all kinds of economic activity. The Puerto Rican government has more money as a result of these low taxes on the rich. And there's a lot more rich people here. I've met a lot of entrepreneurs who are setting up businesses, hiring people, training people. There is nothing but benefit to this island from this program, yet this article didn't do a good job of pointing that out. And then it created this follow on article that is actually trying to use this as proof that low taxes on the rich are bad, that low taxes on the rich are why – economies are in trouble when it's the low taxes on the rich. That is the only reason that these rich people, quote unquote, have moved here in the first place. But of course, it's not all rich people. There are people that have come here who are not now rich, but who are hoping to become rich. Right. They young entrepreneurs who are starting businesses have come here. They're not rich yet. They're hoping to get rich and they just want to keep more of what they earn. And they know, hey, if I start up a company and it really succeeds and I can make a big profit, I can sell it in Puerto Rico. I can sell out my interest without having to pay any tax. So that is a powerful incentive to draw uh, uh, entrepreneurs uh, to the island uh, from other places where the tax rates are not only high now, but you don't have any visibility as to where they may be. Right, if I'm right about what's going to happen politically, about a, uh, a blue wave, about a socialist president and a socialist Congress in 2020, who knows how high – They may drive income tax rates up. Who knows how high they may move the capital gains tax rate up. I think that's very scary. I think it makes a lot more sense for people to build in a higher level of certainty uh, by moving to Puerto Rico and have some clarity, some visibility about their tax rate up to 2035. Now, of course, is it a guarantee? Can something go wrong? Of course, but something can always go wrong. And I, I think that we have less things that could go wrong here with those contracts pr- protecting us than staying in the 50 states with nothing protecting you. I almost forgot too. I want to mention the new Orleans investment conference that I will be speaking at November 1st through the 5th. I go to this conference every year. I think it is the, my favorite conference. One reason, because I love new Orleans. I mean, I, I I don't think that I would live in new Orleans, but I love visiting new Orleans I think it's a great place, especially that time of year, uh, late October, early November. The weather is spectacular. I love the ambiance there. I love the food. I love the music. I love the people that come down to this conference. They're really my peeps down there, Uh, both the speakers, the other speakers who I enjoy seeing every year, the attendees who come back. I always bring uh, my wife and kids. We have a couple of brokers. I think the brokers from my Florida office, uh, Boca Raton office. We recently relocated to uh, newer digs down there, in uh, in Boca Raton. But if you haven't been at a New Orleans conference, you should definitely come. Uh, and if you've been, you know that you should come again. I don't have to sell it to you if you've already been there. But go to their website, New Orleans conference. NewOrleansConference.com. You'll see an older picture of me on the top there. You just want to register, sign up, use my last name Schiff as your promotional code. You will get a discount. I forget how much, but there is something in it for you if you uh, use the promotional code Schiff. It is not a free conference. Uh, you have to pay for it, but remember, you you know you get you get what you pay for. There's a lot of uh, value in this conference. You'll have a great time. It is worth uh, the money to attend. So November 1st through the 5th, I'll be there the entire time. I've got uh, some uh, a keynote speech. I've got my workshop. I got some panels that I'll be on. So uh, make sure and come down. Again, New Orleans Investment Conference, November 1st through the 5th. And use promotional code SHIF. I want to finish up this podcast, though, by talking again about what's going on with, with, with Brett Kavanaugh. And, you know, President Trump, I guess maybe he fell into the trap today, finally, of tweeting out uh, some comments as to, hey, if these allegations are true, why didn't Christine Blasley Ford, uh, you know, bring them up 36 years ago? She's demanding an FBI investigation now. You know, why didn't she demand one back then? And, of course, now everybody wants to attack Uh, the president because oh of course you know the reason that she didn't come out is because you know she was afraid she was worried about you know being blamed for it and because nobody wants to believe women and so it's only natural that she didn't come out and that she waited this long and that we should be applauding the fact that she's finally uh, worked up enough courage after 36 years to finally come out and tell the truth and you know this just shows that Trump doesn't understand women, doesn't care about women, doesn't care about the victims, right? This is what uh, the left wants. In fact, that is the the main reason uh, that this whole thing is going on. It's to make the president and the Republicans appear insensitive to women, that they don't care about women's issues, that they tolerate rapists and they're pro-rape and they're pro-sexual assault, right? Because if you don't immediately believe Christine Blasley Ford. If you don't immediately think that Kavanaugh is a liar and she's telling the truth, well, then you're, you're you know you're anti women and you're pro rape. So this is kind of the box that that everybody falls in. I mean, remember the Anita Hill incident, right, with uh, Clarence Thomas? And one of the fishiest things about the Anita Hill allegation, and again, this wasn't about sexual assault. I think it was about sexual harassment on the job. But was that apparently? Clarence Thomas harassed her. They were both working for the Department of Education or something like that. I forget exactly. I think that's where they were working. And Clarence Thomas was her superior. So she reported to him and he sexually harassed her, according to Anita Hill. But then he quit and he went someplace else and she followed him to his new job. Now you would think if this guy was harassing you when he quit, you would be thank God he's finally out of here. You know, now I can keep working without this. Asshole, you know, sexually harassing me. Instead, the harasser goes to another job and she decides to follow him over there. So that was another indication that whatever he was doing couldn't have been that bad or, you know, she wouldn't have followed him. She would have just taken, you know, the opportunity to finally be rid of the guy. So there's a good chance that she was lying and the whole thing was simply orchestrated to discredit Clarence Thomas to prevent him uh, from being on the Supreme Court and it didn't work. But now... Isn't it possible that this same thing is happening all over again, right? That, I mean, this is not a coincidence that here we have a guy who's nominated for the Supreme Court. Uh, The left doesn't like him. The, The country is very polarized now between a left and right, and all of a sudden, After 36 years, here comes an allegation of uh, sexual assault, never once mentioned in 36 years. All of a sudden, the guy's about to be confirmed as a Supreme Court justice, and all of a sudden, this comes out. You can't even suggest that maybe this is being made up, that maybe uh, this is political opportunism. You just can't even suggest that, that there is no way this woman could be lying. I'm not saying she is lying. But you can't even infer that she might be or say that she might be, right? I mean, all women are honest and they never lie. And all men always lie. They never tell the truth, right? So if Kavanaugh says it didn't happen, well, he's got to be lying, right? And she says it did happen. he's He's got to be telling the truth. But now that, you know, Trump is, has basically, you know, said this, everybody's going to be coming at him. This is going to be a shit show Um, she's supposedly uh, going to be testifying, although we don't know for sure he's going to be testifying. Everybody is going to watch this nonsense. And again, nobody else is coming out and saying, it's all much ado about nothing. Not that I'm belittling the allegations, even if they're true. And again, I don't think they're true. The best case scenario is some version of it is true, right? Probably maybe he's denying it. She's saying it happened. The truth may lie somewhere in between if it lies in there at all, it may, the the allegations may be completely false. For all we know, I mean, maybe it happened and it wasn't even Kavanaugh. I mean, she, she barely remembers anything about the incident, but somehow she remembers the name of the guy who she didn't even know. But again, I am not belittling what happened. I am just putting it in its proper context. And, you know, I saw a lot of comments on my last Uh, YouTube video of this podcast. And some people, uh, you know, thought that my comments were unfair. In fact, I saw a lot of people who decided to unsubscribe from my uh, YouTube channel because they said, hey, Peter, I just, you know, I can't agree with your comments uh, on, on women. And, you know, imagine If that was your daughter, I mean, how would you feel if your daughter had been, you know, assaulted in that way? And look, I am not demeaning or belittling what may have actually happened. And I am not condoning it if, in fact, it did happen. In fact, I went out of my way to say that the conduct is not acceptable, it is not appropriate. And yes, if my daughter uh, had been attacked. In the way that she has described it and that it has been alleged, yes, I would be very upset at what happened. I would want the individual held accountable, the boy who did it held accountable at the time. But but first of all, I would hope that my 15-year-old daughter would not find herself in those circumstances. I would hope that I would raise my daughter, who's now not even three, but I would hope that I would raise her in such a way that she would not be at a at a party where lots of alcohol was being served uh, to underage boys and girls. I don't, I, w- I would hope that she wouldn't be there. And I would also hope that my daughter would know enough that if she is at a party, and if two older boys ask her to go upstairs and go into a bedroom with her, that she says no, thank you. Now, I mean, <laughs> obviously. If, you know, some 17-year-old boys who are drinking try to get you to come up to a bedroom, right? I mean, what do you think they want to do up there? I mean, play checkers with you? I mean, obviously, they want you to go up to a bedroom for a reason, and that reason should be obvious. And I believe it would be obvious uh, to a 15-year-old if their parents properly explained, uh, you know, life to their daughter, which is what every parent needs to do. But, of course, this 15-year-old may have been drunk because the boys were drunk, so it stands to reason that she was drunk, too. Especially since there's so much that she can't recall, uh, and so maybe being drunk that impacted her decision making, and she did something dumb. She came up to a bedroom uh, with a couple of drunk teenage boys with one thing on their mind, and you know they've got that on their mind anyway. Alcohol just brings it out, and maybe she got up there, and then realized she made a big mistake, and uh, you know tried to you know push herself off, and it got out of hand. But I would hope that you know my daughter would not make those mistakes but i recognize that no matter you know what you try to do as a parent this could happen and if despite my best efforts to raise my daughter properly to know right from wrong and somehow she found herself in these circumstances yes i would be very upset at the young man i would probably be upset at my daughter too i wouldn't blame her for the attack i might blame her for drinking But I wouldn't blame her for being sexually assaulted. But I would want the boy to be held accountable. I would certainly want something to happen, some discipline at the time. But what I wouldn't want is for that boy to be punished again 35 years later for that event. And when people keep saying, hey, imagine if it was your daughter. Yes, I get that. But also imagine if Kavanaugh was your son, right? Would I want my son to be held accountable? If my son did what Kavanaugh did and I found out about it, you're damn right that I would punish him, right? I would try to raise my son and I am raising my sons not to treat women like that, to have a lot of respect for women. But if for whatever reason my son got drunk and acted this way, I would want to hold him accountable myself. I would want to force him to apologize, number one, to the woman. I would want to find some way to punish him myself. Would I want my son going to jail for that kind of act? Of course not. And would I want my son to still be paying for that mistake 35 years into the future? And again... It's not just men that have sons. Women have sons, right? Do women want their sons' lives ruined because they made a mistake when they were a teenager, drunk? Just like, you know, the 15-year-old girl might have made a mistake by getting drunk and then going up to a bedroom with a couple of 17-year-old guys. The 17-year-old guys made a mistake by being much too aggressive with this young woman by by, you know, by pinning her to a bed and doing whatever she's accusing them of doing, that shouldn't have been done. That was a mistake. But do women want their sons judged for the mistakes they make when they're teens? Of course not. Women want their sons to be judged for who they are as a man, for the man they become, not the teenager they were. And if Kavanaugh has lived a life where he has treated women extremely well after this incident, right? if he matured and became a better man and grew into a better man, then that's something that we should be proud of. right? Now, the Anita Hill situation that I mentioned, even though Anita Hill was probably lying, if she was telling the truth, I think her allegations were much more relevant because of when they took place. Clarence Thomas was a man. When this happened, he wasn't a boy in high school, and he wasn't drunk unless he was drunk every day on the job. So you're talking about the actions of a sober man, and you're talking about an employer and an employee. So sexual harassment on the job is probably more serious, especially when it's taking place, you know, over a longer period of time, uh, than this uh, allegation here of a one-time incident uh, when alcohol is involved with with underage kids. Yet these allegations. The Anita Hill allegations, even though maybe they were more relevant, were a lie. So the fact that people are going to be skeptical of this last-minute allegation, which potentially could be just a political Hail Mary, right? But you can't even express some kind of a doubt. Because the minute you do that, okay, that's it. You're anti-women, and you're you're done. And I, I can see this whole thing unraveling now because I think that had the Clarence Thomas Allegations come out today. Given the polarity that exists today, given the you know the Me Too stuff and the Harvey Weinsteins and where we are, I do not think Clarence Thomas could be confirmed today, given those allegations. So now we have allegations that may be even less substantive, less relevant because of when they took place and the context that they took place. And again, I haven't seen anybody else who is covering this story. Say, you know what, even if she's telling the truth, it's irrelevant. Everybody who's trying to defend Kavanaugh is defending him on the basis that it didn't happen. It never happened, and and it's a lie. Nobody is saying, hey, even if it happened, he was a kid, he was drunk, and now he's a grown man, and he didn't repeat that. So as bad as his conduct was, we cannot hold him accountable for what he did then. We need to judge him for who he is now. In fact, in my mind, the only thing that potentially could sink him in my opinion is if he's lying about what he did back then. If he actually recalls this incident and he actually, you know, admits that he did it, that he did have too much to drink, that he did get aggressive with this young girl and, you know, he regrets it, he he should have apologized to her, you know, if he does it, if he lies about it now, The lying about it is potentially the reason not to uh, nominate him or confirm him because he's lying. And then it's, well, if he's lying about this, what else is he lying about if we can't trust him? See, if he's lying now as a 53-year-old, especially if he ends up lying under oath, well, that's a lot different than the mistake that he made when he was drunk at a party when he was 17. Uh, And so to the extent that he has any recollection of this, if these events are even partially true, then he needs to fess up to his version of it. And if he feels that he was out of line, then he needs to apologize. Although it may be too late to do that because, of course, he's vehemently denied it. Although I don't know the details of his denial, so you can still deny it and say yes I was at the party I was in that room but it didn't happen the way she described it it wasn't anywhere close I'm not really sure if he's saying hey I, I, I've I never even been to this party I have no idea who this was I've never been to such a party I've never even been you know uh, in, in circumstances like that I'm not really sure the extent to which he denied it but in any event nobody is making this point because I think everybody again is afraid to make the point because you cannot differentiate between degrees there is no context it's all or none if anything bad is done to a woman by a guy no matter what it is or when it was done that disqualifies him from his job right you it's it's a zero tolerance it's not three strikes and you're out it's one strike and you're out and no matter what the strike is you're you're completely out and there is no rehabilitation there is no atonement there is no making up for the sins and indiscretions of your youth, no matter how many years transpire, no matter how good you live your life, uh, you're always gonna be uh, paying the price uh, for that original sin, and you never can redeem yourself. And that is not the message we wanna send to our children. That is not who we are as a, as a nation. We believe in redemption. You know, there's such a thing as juvenile uh, crimes, right? I mean, why does the criminal prison system treat juveniles different than adults, right? Why is there a different set of penalties? If you commit a crime when you're 16 or 17, it's different than when you're 19 or 20. I mean, why do we make that differentiation? Because society wants to give kids a second chance. Society doesn't want to hold children accountable to the same standard that we hold adults. Well, if that's true about crimes, it is true about this situation, whatever happened in that bedroom, in that beach house, if anything happened in that bedroom, in that beach house, happened when the individuals were 15 and 17 years old and they've got a clean slate. If Kavanaugh has lived an exemplary life since that time and if the only thing that happened is what this woman described, yes, it was bad. He shouldn't have done it. He should have been punished at the time that he did it. But at this point, 35 years later, He should not be punished for that. He should be honored for the life he has lived since that time. And if he's going to be approved on a Supreme Court, he should be approved. Of course, I've got all of my uh, problems with the Supreme Court. I think personally that the Supreme Court is the branch of government that has basically let down the American public the most. I think they are chiefly responsible for the growth of power the unconstitutional usurpation of power by the federal government. We're supposed to have checks and balances. The Supreme Court is supposed to enforce the Constitution, apply the Constitution to the federal government. We were supposed to bind up the government in the chains of the Constitution and the jailer is the Supreme Court and they have let the government escape because they have ignored the law. They have interpreted the Constitution into a meaningless Living document that basically has led to the death of American freedom, of American limited government, of the republic uh, that was born out of the sacrifices that were made by the founding fathers. So I have a lot of problems with the Supreme Court, with the judicial system in general. But still, this is not a reason not to confirm a Supreme Court nominee. I can think of all sorts of reasons that would be valid. This one is not one of them. But the fact that so much of our time and our attention is being focused on what happened between teenagers at a high school party just shows you how far from reality we have moved that we're not really debating the real issues. We're debating the noise. And again, this is all Emblematic of the bigger problems going on in our economy. We have major, major problems. We're on the verge of a major economic uh, meltdown. And the only thing we can think about doing on this Titanic of a country is trying to figure out how to rearrange the deck chairs.